They are absolutely looking to sort of not just, you know, rebalance the P&L, but also, I think, figure out where their next growth is going to be. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, October 16th. Today on Media Monday, John Kelly and I discuss the struggles at the Washington Post, which is now offering buyouts to hundreds of employees as the paper faces another down year. And we also look at two brand name best-selling authors, Michael Lewis and Walter Isaacson, both of whom are facing criticism over their latest books. But how much of the hate is warranted? We'll discuss all that and much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting The Gentleman. The new series from Guy Ritchie stars Emmy nominee Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ains. Eddie Horniman, played by Theo James, unexpectedly inherits his father's estate, only to discover it's part of a cannabis empire. And Britain's criminal underworld wants a piece of the operation, forcing Eddie to play the gangsters at their own game. Now available only on Netflix. Happy Monday, everybody. If it's Monday, it's Media Monday. Go Commanders, go Bengals. I'm joined today, as I always am, every Monday, by the boss man, John Kelly. Today, we're going to talk about the Washington Post offering buyouts uh, amid a down year for the paper. And we're also going to talk about Michael Lewis and Walter Isaacson and the controversy around those big authors in their new books about Elon Musk and SBF, respectively. John, how you doing, buddy? I'm all right. I'm excited for all the... uh travel baseball coaches in the world uh, gear up for this time of year because they know that finally the end is in sight here. We've been shepherding these children to greatness all fall, and now we can see the the playoffs and and life beyond where your your weekends are in totally uh, helter-skelter with minivans full of of small children who have absolutely no respect or gratitude for you. So I'm doing okay. (laughs) I grew up playing soccer, and I was not aware that travel baseball happened in the fall. Mm-hmm. I thought we just had like the Little League World Series or and whatnot. No, and these kids specialize now. You know, they have to, it's like the Malcolm Gladwell four million yeah, hours yeah. Uh, thing. And and the, the, the difference, I'm sort of thinking of my buddy Kevin Madden here who does this for, I think is his 12 year old is uh, baseball, mm-hmm. unlike soccer or basketball, is not time boxed within an hour. These games take a right. very, very, very long time. So I'll, I'll, I'll keep my internal monologue to myself. But seeing your smiling face makes everything better, Peter. <laughs> Well, hopefully uh, you can get your boy on a journey to IMG Academy and you can relocate to Bradenton, Florida. Hey, man, that's the plan. Way Wait. nicer than Montclair. But speaking <laughs> of relocating, I saw a ton of action on Instagram and on the Slack that you were in Boston at Harvard with our man Dylan Byers and, and maybe Baratunde too. What was going on there? Was this a, a sort of a puck tea party? So, yeah, I'm on the board at the Shorenstein Center, Harvard's Kennedy School, where I did a fellowship back in 2013. And they are nice enough to... Let me be on their advisory board. This is one of the puck drinking game um, triggers. I think if you hear Shorenstein Center, you have to take a, a double shot of Jameson. <laughs> exactly. But they, Nancy Gibbs, formerly of Time Magazine, people might know, she's wonderful. 
uh, very smart, and uh, despite having old media credentials, is very thoughtful about the future of media, loves Puck, and put together a series of panels for the advisory board late last week and really wanted Dylan to be there because she loves his reporting. She loves listening to him on this podcast. And I got to tell you, John, I mean, you know, God, we really like to fluff puck on our own, on our own (laughs) (laughs) broadcasts here. But I mean, and again, this is like Harvard advisory board types, lots of formers, but you know, serious people in journalism, lots of them came up to Dylan, wanted to shake his hand, talk to him, said they were a fan you know, just like they, they puck puck was big in that space, which I feel like is on brand for us. You know, we can add uh, Cambridge to the intersection of Hollywood, Silicon Valley, Wall Street, and Washington, and Harvard Square. I uh, I just love the idea of Dylan with the black two button open Prada shirt masquerading around Harvard, uh, telling all these people how it's done. That is, um, uh, <laughs> we have done it all, my friend. There's nothing left on the punch list. So, John, speaking of Dylan. This was reported last week. Dylan fleshed it out with some of his original reporting. But the Washington Post is is set to lose $100 million this year. Their subscriber number has dropped 15% since 2021. The digital audience has declined by almost 30% since 2021. Uh, the interim CEO, Patty Stonecipher, did some meetings last week and announced they're doing offering uh, 240 voluntary buyouts across the company's staff. Most of these are going to target the metro section. You know, kind of bums me out as, you know, when I lived in D.C., I I enjoyed the metro section uh, when I got home delivery. And the buyouts are pretty generous. I mean, if you worked at the Post for 15 years or more, you know, you get two years full pay and a year of health insurance. Mm -hmm. Pretty good. So it sounds like those people who get offered the buyouts will take the buyouts. What was your first take on all this when when you heard about it? Was this just like obviously going to happen. This company overhired perhaps during the Trump years or they, maybe they are slightly overambitious and are now finally facing what a lot of like big tech and media companies had to face in recent years too, which is, you know, they hired too many people <laughs> and now they have to dial it back. Uh, three things came to mind. And first, just one sort of nit clarification. Metro is absolutely getting targeted, but I think of the 240, it's split close to evenly between the newsroom and yeah, and the yeah. business side, the advertising business, team, yeah. technology, product marketing, et cetera, et cetera. So I assume that Book World and you know I think that the Post has a couple dozen climate reporters. I, I think that there are um, there are pockets that they'll go into very quickly. But a few points stuck out at me immediately. First was this was obviously happening long coming and probably on some level overdue. It actually shows you what a, a generous benefactor Jeff Bezos is that he's willing to lose a hundred million dollars a year. Wow. Usually, the biggest lever any company has for adjusting its fixed costs is labor. So it was obvious that they were going to find the delta between their profit and loss within their human capital. And I think that they did overhire. I think that that's pretty clear. I think they probably mishired in certain places. And the thing, like point number two, which was sort of astounding to me, was how Patty uh, Stonecipher just rolled the bus over Fred Ryan, reversed it, and rolled it again, <laughs> and made clear that they 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 hired this way because they had these these rosy tinted projections that were just absolutely bullshit in terms of goals, and I presume in terms of revenue. That CRO of the Post left for the Times a while ago, which either means that she was responsible for numbers they weren't going to hit, or she knew that the numbers that she was supposed to hit weren't going to hit. And it, it seems like this was just an improperly managed sort of, you know, gentleman's business. That was always the knock on Fred Ryan, right? It was that he was not a MBA. He was a, a, a guy who came from politics and was at Politico 
before Jim Van Heys sort of took the wheel back and grew the business, and then before you know, Patrick Steele brought it from you know from the founder stage to a billion dollar exit. So Fred's role in that is is a, there's a bit of mythology. And here's point three, and this is, gets to some information that I un- uncovered last week, which is. One underappreciated bit of this, and it's been certainly not underappreciated by Dylan, it's been in his reporting, is that the Post lost its zhuzh, right? And that's not just Trump. Some of that is internal. And I'm not certainly not calling anyone's work. They do immense and important work there. But we're we're dealing with the kind of post-Marty Baron blues here. And Sally Busby is a a very competent, smart person, but they picked an editorial leader from a a wire service. Put it this way, it's one type of thing, right? And they are absolutely looking to to sort of not just, you know, rebalance the the P&L, but also, I think, figure out where their next growth is going to be. We, we've heard for the better part of a year that they're trying to, you know, endeavoring to figure out how to build out these sort of always-on lifestyle sections like the Times. You know, one of the secrets of the Times when I worked there was that it had the best audience in every category available, right? It had the be- a better audience, a better travel audience than travel and leisure. It had people who were more obsessed with film and Hollywood than variety. It had a, a audience who spend more on fashion than people who read Vogue. So it was the best of everything. And I presume there's some level of truth with the post as well, they just don't know how to create products for these people to keep them on their O&O channels all the time. And that's the job of the main creative executive. And I'm not trying to cause trouble here, but I assume that after they hire a new CEO and the people that Dylan has unearthed seem incredibly capable, there were some great contenders uh, for this job. People, you know, they wanted Meredith Coppett-Levin, obviously she wasn't gonna take it. Goalie, the CEO Politico, who's fabulous, uh, has a great job. Dylan unearthed that one top contender is Josh Steiner, a guy I admit I'd never heard of, but upon sort of perusing his CV, realized would be perfect for this job. Mm. If, uh, yeah, he comes out of politics, so understands the kind of pressure cooker of the opportunity, was a, an MD at Lazard, and has uh, worked in a number of senior capacities at, at Bloomberg LP, overseeing the um, non-consumer, the non-terminal stuff. So, uh, you know, running some of their um, investing arm, and obviously knows how to not just run a highly profitable business at scale, but also knows how to, to report to a single-minded zillionaire, which I think is a very important... Relevance. Yeah, it's, it's relevant <laughs> in this ownership structure. It, it, it absolutely is. But I also think that one of the, the next things is they're going to have... This person's going to come in and I would assume make an assessment of whether Sally Busby is their editor. And I, and I assume that that's going to be critical. They, they probably won't want to do that during the uh, election cycle because it would create a lot of chaos and they don't want to have any more instability, lose even more people to the Times, which seems willing to hoover them all up. But I just have to assume that that is critical because the Post has not created the sort of heat and wow factor that it did for the last half decade of, of the Barron run, which was just absolutely remarkable. And he did it with, with talent that in a lot of cases was homegrown or home trained or, or elevated. You know, uh, they were, it wasn't like they were just pumping Bob Woodward to produce, you know, scoops from the late sixties and early seventies. You know, that was, you could see Barron's talent at work. And it actually, I'm kind of going on a tangent here, but it, I did provoke my own little thought exercise of who who could do this job? If, if Sally ends up leaving in a year or two, who else is out there for this? You know, people don't aspire to these jobs the way they used to generationally, you know, where you'd sort of see the person mm-hmm. in the newsroom. I mean, would they, would they possibly try and get Mark Lacey or Carolyn Ryan, who are the two people bidding for 
the executive editor job in the New York Times, and and only one of them will get it because of the age restrictions. They're both in their late fifties. I think Joe's a couple years older, so I think one of them will probably be termed out. So maybe somebody blinks there. I had a sort of fantasy memoir. I thought, oh my God, what if Jeff Bezos says like David Remnick, I'll pay you you know five to ten million dollars a year to come back to the paper <laughs> where you got your Pulitzer. I don't think this is crazy, by the way. I, I think this yeah. is uh, this is my um, th- that's just a, a hypothesis based on no information, but and, and maybe you know I'm. I'm promise you I'm not trying to cause trouble, but there are a number of, of factors for how to regrow the Washington Post, and I'm sure that they're contemplating everything. Yeah, you're, that, the Renwick thing is, is interesting. I, I, I You just jogged my memory that he was at the Washington Post. He was their Moscow guy uh, forever. Yeah. He wrote that great book, Lenin's Tomb, which mm-hmm. is like the, the book that got me interested in Russia, honestly. Um, that's a curveball idea. I kind of like it. Uh, one other thing we should say before going to break is, is just it's worth noting, I believe, one of the uh, beats not targeted for buyouts is national politics and investigations. I mean, that's that's just their bread and butter. Uh, and that it, that it feels like that's just going to be like the centerpiece of what they do moving forward. Yeah, they're not going to touch the core I- endemic part of the business. The challenge for them, especially in the talent pool and talent market they're in, and, and given the, the networks of the people who run the place is how do you do everything else? How do you figure out how to create, you know, they call it lifestyle. I hate that word, but how do you create provocative, thoughtful content? I hate that word too, for people when they're, you know, to get them in or out of their political coverage. What's your wordle? What's your Sam Sifton cooking? And they're, I have they're the nowhere. solution, John. You want to hear it? Let's hear it. Bring, Bring back, back Date, date Lab. lab. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> do you remember the Washington Post Date Lab? I, I, of course I do. How could I forget it, Peter? This was, um, I mean, in, in the annals of horrible ideas, I'm trying to think of uh, some other contenders for, for the all-time edition. The Date Lab was like a great cringe read, hate read back in the day. I just looked it up. The last one ran at the end of 2022, and it's like, this is an example of what the Date Lab is. Tom, a project manager for an international agricultural development firm, was set up with Taylor, a secretary at a law firm. And they went to some Italian restaurant in Columbia Heights and they do a little write-up of the date, which seems extremely boring. And then at the end of every date lab, they would rate the date and Tom would say 4.5 and Taylor said a five. And then update a week later, Taylor texted Tom. However, they have not gone on another date. Anyway, bring back the date lab. Uh, John, I'm gonna take a quick break. When we come back, I wanna talk to you about Michael Lewis and Walter Isaacson and the blowback they're getting. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting the new series, The Gentleman. Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings star in what the playlist calls an entertaining crime comedy filled with style, panache, and laughs. The Evening Standard raves, The Gentleman is peak Guy Ritchie, impossible not to love. Now available only on Netflix. Hey guys, it's Peter. When I'm not recording the pod, let's be honest, I'm probably snacking, I get hungry. But when I can steal some moments during the day, I do like to eat healthy. And eating better is easy with Factors, delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. And this is big, no cooking required. I recommend the smoothies. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. 
So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. These are two-minute meals. Fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat wherever you are. Pancakes, I love pancakes. More than waffles, more than French toast. A couple of my favorites so far, the red chili chicken tamale bowl and the smoky bacon and cheddar egg bites. I love egg bites. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. So sign up and save. Head to factormeals.com slash powers that be 50 and use code powers that be 50 to get 50% off. That's code powers that be 50 at factormeals.com slash powers that be 50 to get 50% off. Welcome back to the Powers That Be, everybody. It's Media Monday, of course. John, our colleague Bill Cohan, unlike us, sat down and read Michael Lewis's new book, Going Infinite, The Rise and Fall of a New Tycoon. That is the subtitle. Bill has a piece uh, that came out uh, yesterday about this, but for our listeners, can you summarize Bill's take one of my favorite headlines in puck history, Infinite Jest. And um, yeah, Bill actually liked the book a lot more than most of the reviewers. You know, this Michael book is getting panned because it's come out strategically on the date of the trial. And people are looking for a moral indictment of Sam, which it does not provide. You know, I think that uh, Michael writes the book that he wanted to write. He had probably already written about half to two thirds of it before SBF was determined to have no clothes, as, as, so to speak. About, you know, in November or, uh, of last year, the whole CZ thing happened, and then you know FDX got got wound down, and it turned out that there was the appearance of fraud. He was sent to jail, house arrest jail, et cetera, et cetera. And now, you know, the guy's on trial basically for his life. And mm-hmm. it's very clear from the way this was reported out that, that was not the outcome that, that Michael Lewis was expecting. And what's funny about, Bill makes a couple of great points here that I want to sort of co-opt. And, you know, one of them that's so interesting is that Michael Lewis has made his career and everyone who, who talks to Michael Lewis goes out of their way to say, because it's true that he is like the loveliest guy on, on the face of the earth. So he, he's so lovely and, and another uh, New Orleanian that um, you have to talk about how lovely he is, but that he always finds the Michael Lewis character, the person who sees the thing that nobody else sees, you know, and whether that's Michael Burry, the, the, the one-eyed guy who can see the terrible bed in the housing market and insurance it, or Billy Bean, who was his five-tool prospect, who realizes that scouting is all bullshit and you need to hoard your team with late-stage David Justices and, and Kevin the Greek God of Walks, Euclid's. <laughs> Euclid's! Right, I mean, Lyra's <laughs> Poker has a little bit of that too, the new, new thing. You know, he, he finds the people who see the thing. And uh-huh. by all accounts, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried did not see the thing. In fact, the only thing that he might have—the the only thing he might have seen—if you want to be generous to, to Michael Lewis—is he saw how gullible everyone was to believe this bullshit story of this guy who looked like he bathed with a toaster oven, you know, and and uh, barely worked in finance and bought off rich friends and um, politicians and and operatives. And you know, he's capable of writing the book that he, he wants to write. But I think that there's a, a prevailing view out there, and the book is number one on the bestseller list. Uh, there's there's a view out there that, that Michael Lewis got played. And there's another sort of view, and this is where it gets interesting because it, it, this all coincides with Walter Isaacson's Elon Musk book. There is a view 
view that, you know, Walter Isaacson and Michael Lewis have, have ascended from biographer to people who are worthy of biography themselves. You know, they're like huge mm-hmm. cultural hegemons who had extraordinarily successful careers that they didn't slow down the train as their story changed mid-arc. Uh, and that there was a, another alternative way to handle this, possibly more responsibly, if slightly less commercially, which would have been to reassess a lot of the work that they had done in light of new information, i.e. Sam Bankman-Fried, sure looking like a crook, and Elon Musk, sure looking like some sort of new economy Genghis Khan. And they didn't do that for one reason or another, possibly because they don't believe the, the hype of the current moment, possibly because there was a lot of pressure to get these books out by a certain date to maximize the sales uh, opportunities. But either way, there is a sort of schadenfreude moment happening here where, all, you know, and God knows uh, writers can be a sharp-elbowed uh, cohort where a lot of people think that, that they really uh, they really got hosed here. Yeah, I mean, this debate was illuminated actually in a really interesting way in a New York Times profile about Michael Lewis as part of this press tour. And it's a long piece by Chris Beam. Uh, the headline is, Michael Lewis Doesn't Do Villains. And basically, the writer makes the point many of which you've been making that Michael Lewis can sort of like lionize these figures and like he's not skeptical enough and he's just not cynical enough. And Lewis pushes back on that pretty eloquently. And it's it's a kind of, he pushes back in a kind of way that that is befits his like generation of writers, mm. like the kind of like what it takes style journalism. Like you try to like unpack these characters, there's good and bad. And like that kind of journalism exist in the sort of Twitter X moment today where pushing back against it is this tidal wave of just like finger waggers and like clout chasers who like attack these other authors for like trying to write like a nuanced portrait and not just condemning SBF. And it reminded me of this quote actually that Joe Klein, remember Joe Klein? Yeah, sure. Uh, Primary Time Magazine. When I wrote my paper for the Shorenstein Center back in 2013, Drink, um, it was about how Twitter changed politics. And I interviewed like, you know, like a hundred journalists, you know, young, old, like political types, et cetera. And this is what Joe Klein told me. I just pulled it up. And this is in my, in my Shorenstein paper. The biggest change I've seen in our business over the last 40 years has been that journalism has slid from skepticism, which should be our natural state. We have slipped from there towards cynicism. It's gotten to the point where the toughest story for a young reporter to write these days is a positive one. And like, it's a good point. I mean, like, I think I kind of agree with Michael Lewis's argument, at least in this New York Times profile, that I approach these things with a skeptical eye. These people are interesting. They have layers. Like, I have all this access. I'm like providing you a portrait. I'm not just going out there to like cut someone's throat, you know, which is kind of like the Isaac Chotner, you know, version of journalism at The New Yorker, which is like, get some doofus to do an interview and just like cut their balls off. (laughs) Uh, And he's like, I'm a writer. I'm a journalist. I want to like paint a picture. And it's a compelling argument from him. And look, I mean, Lewis has had some hits and some misses, more hits than misses, obviously. But this is a a book I actually do want to read. And the Isaacson one I'm less interested in, but only because I'm just like oversaturated with Elon Musk. And I just don't, (laughs) I don't, I don't need to read uh, any more Elon Musk content these days. Well, it is. It, I guess we're doing the, the very, very meta thing here, right? We're, we're, we're talking about the sort of media reaction to, to media figures who are covered by yeah. media figures. And I get the sort of yawn here. 
One meta point that you could extrapolate from all of this is now Michael Lewis has written about only living figures, you know, uh-huh. and with the exception of a couple of examples, and I'm thinking about the guys like Dana Kahneman and some of you know what he, what he covered in, in Lars Poker. They're they're largely an anonymous people, uh-huh. but Walter Isaacson has written about often long dead or or historic. Yeah, the last and, book and of his I read past. was the Leonardo book. <laughs> right, Leonardo, <laughs> Steve Jobs. You know, I, I think that the, the gene splicing book is is a, an aberration from this. So. You know, what we're sort of experiencing here is actually just how much the, the narratives do change and shift about the truly, like, totemically hegemonic people, you know, mm-hmm. cultural figures in American life these days. You know, uh, that whole um, there are no second acts thing is nonsense. Like, now there are only second acts. When, when you think about how the Musk or sort of Bezos generation, um, to take a, a figure from our A block, who would be my strong guessing contender for who the, the next um, Isaacson biography subject would be. Th- these are people whose lives are unbelievably metamorphosizing before our very eyes. And that makes it hard. Like SBF is, is like 31. I think part of what people are criticizing Michael Lewis for here is he finds his characters amusing. Like he finds this guy interesting. Yeah. And yeah. Um, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. That's okay. Exactly. That's okay. And it doesn't necessarily acknowledge it's not meant to like approve what he may or may not have done. He says he's innocent. Uh, there are obviously the, the, as this trial continues, it seems like there's overwhelming evidence to suggest that he uh, had had a very elastic view of financial management. But it will be interesting to see how we look at SBF. You know, in, in 20 years, I, I often think ahead and wonder. I don't know what the medium will be then. It's not going to be primetime live or 2020. But when Elizabeth Holmes is out of jail, like how are we going to look at all this in 20 years or 12 years? Yeah. How are we going to think about the SBF thing? If if there's probably one, I'm, and I, again, I'm hypothesizing here, but if there's one regret, I suppose, that I'm guessing Michael Lewis might have, it's that the sort of Michael Lewis element of this was that Silicon Valley had become an environment where an SBF could exist. Everyone was yearning for a vessel for capital that was this contrarian, somebody who, who, who looked like they just come out of a shoebox and yet was obviously brilliant, you know, spoke a million miles a second and clearly, you know, backed it up intellectually and could be a custodian of their capital. I mean, when you think about the very serious financial investors that FTX had and how little governance they had, I mean, it, it shows you that on some level, you know, not to contradict myself, but... He may have found his Michael Lewis character in the, in the one guy who could exploit this, although obviously it was a, a short-term view. All right, John, thanks so much. And, and by the way, for people who want to follow the SBF trial in real time, make sure you're following Teddy Schleifer, who's been in the courtroom for that and has spent lots of time with, with SBF. Yep. Uh, Teddy's book on SBF in 20 years will also be <laughs> worth a read. <laughs> uh, if you can uh, give him book leave at some point, John. All right, buddy, I will see you in the Slack. Thank you and have a great week. All right, you too, man. See you there. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, 
and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.